Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Just over the last 24 hours, we've had a lot of news, it seems, about uh, hacking of various computer systems. We had the Twitter hack, where a lot of big-name accounts were hacked on Twitter yesterday. Uh, today, news that the UK, US, and Canada are jointly accusing Russia of cyber attacks against coronavirus research centers. So, uh, again, uh, cybersecurity right back in the fore, which uh, we're fortunate now to have uh, Clint Watts join us to talk about this. He's a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute is also senior fellow with the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. I think I want to start with uh, the potential, the allegations that uh, the Russians have been trying to hack into some of the coronavirus testing sites. What do you know about that? Yeah, it's it's not surprising. Um, it's a little bit different for them. Traditionally, we think of the Chinese uh, hacking for intellectual property. That's always been a big concern, particularly in the United States. Um, but the truth of it is, whoever gets the vaccine first or whoever can replicate it very cheaply and accelerate their ability to get that vaccine, not only are they going to be able to protect their own country and help their own country, but they will be able to really move economically uh, as an exporter. It almost becomes a, a valuable asset for a country if they can gain that. So I think any of these countries that are lagging behind that really don't have the ability to, to develop such a vaccine are going to take targets. And one of the strategic assets the Russians have, we know this from election 2016 to now, is they use hackers prolifically uh, to gain information. And the UK, at uh, this, this point, not just today with the, the vaccines, but also announcing with their parliament uh, interference from 2019, it seems to be a, a big target for Russia. It does seem to be in the DNA, so to speak. But Clint, isn't there an agreement among global superpowers or the ones that once were superpowers, that there would be sharing. If there is you know, significant breakthroughs when it comes to vaccines and viruses, it's in everybody's interest to share this. It is, but in this case, and it's interesting because that, that was really kind of Bill Gates' mandate, right? He was taking that on to make sure that all these vaccines could, could be used by everybody. But you have to look at it in terms of who's going to be able to have the capacity to develop it who's going to have the economic structure and incentives behind it once they do develop it and be able to distribute it rapidly and all over. And whatever country can get out in front of that first is going to have an advantage. You'd just be able to replicate it. You'd be able to to make more uh, of the vaccine. You'd be able to distribute it quicker, which gives you a leg up uh, geopolitically across all countries. I do think there will be sharing, um, but just imagine the United States right now, what a dire need we have for a vaccine so that we can get back up on our feet. Uh, and if we had a competitor that could maybe hold that over our head to a, a different degree, it just becomes a strategic asset over time. Clint, do we have any idea as to the uh, the protections, the security that the healthcare, some of these big pharma companies, biotech companies have you know, in place right now to protect kind of their testing and, and the results? This is one of those interesting things where sector by sector, as the sector gets hit, the cybersecurity protections become better. So the first people to really get hit were banks and financials, right? And they stood up to it. You saw that with manufacturing next. But healthcare and the healthcare sector lagged, and so did research and development for a very long time. Many of the big companies um, 
are very good in terms of protecting their their IP and their their networks and their systems. However, you're talking about a global, you know, a global vaccine race where you see many many companies coming online. Probably companies that uh, weren't traditionally even trying to pursue a vaccine that maybe have an ability to jump over trying to enter that market. You're probably going to see excessive communication and people that are in a rush when you're in a hurry. You're always more vulnerable uh, for cyber incident or a cyber attack. It's easier to be socially engineered. And, and so if you put all these circumstances together, people get hasty. People are moving very quickly. It's just a lot of opportunities there for someone to penetrate a network. So it might be a little less, you know, disingenuous or, or dangerous, let's say. But until we heard about Russia hacking on vaccines, potentially, we yesterday got some major accounts hacked at Twitter and, you know, a Bitcoin scam going around the likes of Bill Gates, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett. They were all affected. Who might have been behind this? I mean, could it have been some kid with not very much to, to you know, to prove except that he could do this? Or could it have been something more sinister, Clint? I, I think it's definitely something more sophisticated than a one-off lucky hacker or individual. This seems to be an organized syndicate. What's strange is that they chose Bitcoin or as a Bitcoin sort of like aggregation operation. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do cyber attacks to make money. That's not one that's necessarily the most profitable. But it did really illustrate a weakness or a vulnerability, which is if you can get inside Twitter systems, and you can gravitate towards and be able to manipulate uh, accounts with a very high following, which is what they did. They really focused on uh, outstanding influencers, big companies. Uh, if you have that ability, you can broadcast, you can enter into the information space in a very dynamic way. And so, it, you know, this seems to be a financial scam, and I'm sure we'll get more for Twitter. But imagine had this been the day before the election or the day of the election. Um, what if they had taken over media accounts like Bloomberg or any of the mainstream media outlets, right, and started putting out inauthentic results of elections or ballots? It would be it would cause mass chaos in an election in a scenario like we that. We are going to have to continue this conversation. It is a fascinating one, and it will be with us throughout the election and beyond. Our thanks to you, Clint, there uh, for joining us. Well, given the market action that we've seen over the last couple of months, that bounce off the bottom, a lot of investors are asking themselves, you know, how do I play this? Do I get in? Is it too late? Even Bill Miller uh, said value stocks advantages is probably short lived. He's counting on a comeback for growth stocks to get a sense of kind of maybe where we move from here. We welcome Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also founder and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. Bill Miller talking about growth stocks. What do you make of that? So Bill Miller tells a fascinating story about his um, come to Jesus moment after the 87 crash. You know, they had put together a nice track record, but in 87, 88, 89, they really were struggling. And he went back and reevaluated under what circumstances does value beat growth and how can we better measure value? And they came up with a series of um, variations that are different than the traditional price to earnings ratio. One is straight up return on capital. And as soon as they began to implement these, he had a spectacular run from, from 1991 to 2005, 
15 consecutive years of a major fund beating the S&P 500. There's never been another streak like that in history. So when when Bill Miller says, hey, coming out of a recession, value is cyclical, it tends to be more sensitive to interest rates and to inflation, and it tends to to do better, but in a very low yield environment, growth is going to be advan- is going to have the advantage. So, don't expect the value stocks to beat growth for very much longer. And Barry has now done two Masters in Business podcasts with the legendary Bill Miller. I can't recommend them enough. Some things that you really would not expect to be in there, in there, including what Barry has just voiced about, you know, a, a legendary value investor talking about growth stocks so much. So, Barry, what about the fangs? I mean, are we due for sort of a rollover? You know, I, I keep seeing these comparisons between the run-up of the fang stock and, and the dot-com collapse in the late 1990s. Everybody wants to draw the wrong lesson from, from the implosion we saw in, in 2000. And I think there are, there are several really specific differences that, that are important to note. Uh, the first is it, in the 90s, the tech stocks had a 1,000% appreciation over five years. Over the past five years, uh, the, the big tech stocks are up about 175%. That, that's a huge difference. It's, you know, it was five times more aggressive back then than it, than it is today. Uh, so that's number one. Second, you cannot help but look at the big tech stocks and notice, dear Lord, these are cash machines. Microsoft and Apple and Google and Facebook, they are just printing money. And, and now you throw in uh, Netflix, uh, Amazon, another one, just gaining market share, printing money. The, and on top of everything else, Amazon Cloud Service is a big profit engine. So very different era today with prof, not only revenue but profits versus the 90s, certainly a big difference. But, but I think the most the, – the difference that explains why the market is confounding people to such a large degree – you know, people look around and they see the U.S. economy is not doing great. It's improving, but it's still wildly off from where it was in this time uh, last year or even, you know, January, February. And the reopening has gone poorly. We've, we've bungled the whole COVID-19 management. But you look around the rest of the world and places like Germany and South Korea and Taiwan and China are all doing a better job than, than we are and to tie that back to the fangs, to tie that back to the big tech companies, these companies derive the majority of their revenues from non-U.S. sources. Apple, most of all, as much as 60% in, in some quarters. Uh, Microsoft, Facebook, Google in the, you know, about half, maybe a little more. Amazon, Netflix also, uh, a little more. Amazon is the laggard because so much of the retail sales between Whole Foods and the delivery service is in the U.S., um, so not only are most of the big tech companies getting the m- majority of their revenues from overseas, but overseas is their fastest growth markets also. It really explains why we could have such a mediocre economy in the U.S. and why the big tech stocks are doing so well. It, it's not as irrational as it appears. So – Barry, I, I think I, you know, a lot of folks would agree with you that the U.S. Uh, federal government has bungled, uh, to use your term, the, the response to COVID-19. At some point, do the markets need to see some 
significant coordination improvement here uh, to move higher? Because it seems like, despite some of the weaknesses that we've seen in key markets like California, Texas, Florida, the market's been generally pretty nonchalant about this uh, flare-up here. Yeah, so some of that is the improvement overseas. Some of that is we were expecting a second wave in the fall, and I think some people are incorrectly considering this a second wave. This is just an extension of the first wave. And I can't help but feel that the run of very positive news about um, the various vaccines, uh, Moderna is, is one and the one out of Oxford is the other, and, and the improving treatments for people even if they do get um, catch uh, coronavirus kind of has people looking past this flare-up and the full flare-up to, hey, we're very likely to have, by this time next year, there should be some sort of a widespread vaccine. That's a fair guess from a non-doctor, and I think a lot of the investors share my lack of qualifications to opine on this. But it appears that we're moving in the right direction on the medical treatment, even if we mess up the reopening and we mess up the, the herd immunity, uh, there'll be a magic bullet that will uh, allow us to, to return to normal sometime in the future. And, and 2020, just the market seems to be saying, hey, it's a mulligan, just forget about it. Let's look towards 2021 and 2022. Barry, always amazing chatting with you. Wanted to talk to you sometime about Robinhood as well, because apparently uh, yesterday we, we saw the Robinhood traders jump on the Moderna bandwagon as well. And so we'll have to see how that plays out. But Barry is always full of really down to earth, interesting market thoughts. He's founder of Riddles Wealth Management. He's also, of course, a Bloomberg opinion columnist. And he is also host of Masters in Business. And do go and have a look at those Bill Miller Masters in Business podcasts that he put out. One is a couple of years ago and the other is just uh, this week so really interesting uh, stories there from Bill Miller a legendary investor Barry Rittles thank you The World Trade Organization has been in existence for 25 years, but it's never been more front of mind than in the last couple of years. President Trump and Brexit, of course, keeping the WTO in the news headlines constantly. Well, the referee at the WTO is the appellate body. Let's welcome now the former chairman of the appellate body of the WTO, Jim Bacchus, distinguished university professor of global affairs at the University of Central Florida and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute as well. His latest work is The Willing World, Shaping and Sharing a Sustainable Global Prosperity, and that's out from Cambridge University Press. So, Mr. Bacchus, thank you so much for joining. Where does the appellate body at the WTO stand at the moment in terms of world significance? Well, currently the uh, appellate body stands still uh, because uh, under the rules of the WTO treaty, uh, the uh, uh, appellate body cannot hear any new appeals unless it has at least three members. It ordinarily has seven. It currently has one. And um, this is entirely because uh, the United States under President Trump has refused to join in the needed consensus with other WTO members to appoint new judges. Uh, the significance of this is that uh, it uh, undermines the ability of the WTO to make binding and enforceable judgments 
in inevitable international trade disputes, as it has done in hundreds of cases very successfully over the past 25 years. We're now suddenly back to the days before the WTO in which, in effect, any one country can uh, block a ruling against it uh, by a WTO panel. Thus, we're heading toward uh, a situation in which anything goes, especially for the larger company, the countries that have the uh, political and economic leverage to get away with ignoring uh, WTO rulings. So far, the U.S. has been one and the only one that has uh, tried this approach. So, Jim, give us a sense of how you think this might play out at the WTO. Again, as Vanya was mentioning, it's been in existence for 25 years. The U.S. has been a willing and able participant in the WTO, the World Trade Organization. To the extent that we get a new administration in in a matter of months, will that change perhaps the the way the U.S. views uh, its role in the WTO? I think it will. Um Donald Trump is not going to change. Support him or oppose him, I think we can all agree on that. And if he's reelected, this stalemate is likely to continue with grievous effects in world trade for the United States and for all other countries. If um, Joe Biden is elected, I think we'll see a return by the United States uh, to uh, more multilateral approaches uh, that uh, give more emphasis to international cooperation. Uh, the WTO is one of those places in which uh, we uh, will see that, I think, and I, I predict that one of the first evidences of that new approach would be uh, the United States joining with other members of the WTO to um, uh, resume uh, the work of the appellate body. Mr. Balkas, I mean, we should remind people that one of the reasons why the appellate body is so important is that it protects countries, really, from retaliation against trade partners with, with you know, without fear of uh, expressing their opinion or of, uh, you know, not having a referee in between the two. So smaller states, you know, might be at a disadvantage if it weren't for this kind of referee, this global referee. But as we move into a period, and we're already in it really, of countries turning inwards, of, you know, states being more important again and so on, how can the WTO appellate body referee in a world like that where where even trade is almost less important? Well, I don't think trade is less important. It's it's been declining uh, during the the pandemic, but I think trade links are all the more important as we go forward in the world. We have to increase global wealth so that we'll be able to address all the many problems we have, and uh, we can't uh, increase prosperity if we're decreasing trade. Uh, As for the appellate body, uh, it is a panel of jurists. They are independent and impartial. A referee, as you rightly said, and uh, it's important to have them there so that we can resolve peacefully and positively the uh, trade disputes that uh, inevitably occur um, in the 98% of all world commerce that uh, falls within the scope of the WTO treaty. Uh, Without uh, an impartial and independent judge of these disputes, there is much more danger 
that um, the disputes could get out of hand, especially in today's more precarious and perilous world, um, people forget that one of the reasons we invented the trading system in the first place uh, after World War II was to help prevent World War III. And uh, so far we succeeded in that, uh, but in order to continue to succeed in that, we need to have a global trading system based on agreed rules in which the rules are upheld fairly under the rule of law. That's where the appellate body comes in. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to play, uh, continue to follow this. Jim Backus, thanks so much for joining us. Jim is a professor of global affairs at the University of Central Florida and a former chairman of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. I think it's a really interesting conversation, Vani, to think about the future of the World Trade Organization, what role it's going to play in global trade. As as you mentioned, Vani, a lot of countries, not just the United States, a lot of countries are starting to look more inward, perhaps a little bit less international, a little bit less global and we'll have to see if that is a trend that continues and certainly the pandemic will certainly have some impact on that it is time for bloomberg opinion we are joined by bloomberg opinion columnist michael schumann he's author uh and columnist bloomberg opinion based in hong kong an interesting a really fascinating column out today talking about you know amid the rising tensions between the u.s and china the question is to what extent can u.s companies really decouple from China. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. So again, let's go to that issue there. What are we seeing from corporate America as it thinks about how to deal with China, both as a supplier and as a customer? Well, I think what, what CEOs have to have to kind of wake up to is that, you know, there's a lot of debate in the U.S. about, well, should, should the U.S. decouple from China? Shouldn't the U.S. decouple? What should the strategy be? The reality on the ground is that it's kind of already happening. I mean, we don't know how far it's going to go. Are these two economies really going to pull totally totally pull apart? Probably not. But I think if you're if you're running a company, you have to have it in your head that the relationship with China is changing going forward, and it's it's it doesn't look like it's it's really going to reverse back to to the way things were. So I don't even if you don't want to decouple, even if you don't you don't want to change your your business in China. I think you have to be thinking out five, ten years ahead. Well, what are what are my alternatives? What you know? What can I do to either decrease my reliance to on China, to diversify both in terms of where I'm making my products, but also where I'm selling my products. And Michael, this isn't because solely geopolitical issues are causing a, you know a bit of a deterioration in the relationship. It's also for very practical reasons. You point out in your piece, for example, that it's a more useful consumer in Southeast Asia than it is and will be in China for some time to come. And also that an aging China will lose 30 million people, whereas the ASEAN region is going to add 40 million working age people by 2030. Well, look, you know, you can't replace China as a consumer market, right? I mean, it's 1.4 Billion people, and uh, they're getting increasingly wealthy, and they and they're increasingly like to spend more and more money. So, you know, it, it's not like oh gee, uh, I don't need this market. At the same time, you know, if you're if you're looking to diversify, or you're looking for new sources of, of customers. They they are out there. Uh, when you look at projections, for example, the growth of the middle class in in places like India, uh, Southeast Asia, as you mentioned, 
uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of potential growth out there. And in some cases, you know, where, where China's actually, of course, aging and the working age population, as you said, is shrinking. In, in some of these areas, for example, in, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, you have much better demographics. You're actually, you know, adding working age people who are going to be, you know, earning, earning more and more money. So, you know, again, you know, I don't think anyone wants to pull out of the Chinese market and lose all that business. But, you know, if you're looking to, to diversify, if you're looking for, you know, kind of hedging, hedging your bets, you know, there are other places out there where there's a lot of potential to make a lot of money. So it's interesting. How much of this do you think is a result of President Trump and his, uh, you know, uh, you know, America first type of policy and that perhaps if we were to get a, a different administration here in several months, uh, a, a Joe Biden administration uh, that presumably would have more traditional uh, globalist views, internationalist views that this trend may be reversed. How much of it is politically driven, do you think? Uh, well, you know, on, on the U.S. side, uh, you know, I, I think what's really remarkable what, what's happened in the last, let's say, three to four years is, is how how China's really lost its friends in Washington. You know, I, I, I don't see the, the Democrats being particularly softer on China at this point than, than uh, the Trump administration is. I think if there's a cha- if there is a change in, in the White House, maybe some of the tone will be different. Some of the policies may be different. But are, is China going to have a you know a friendlier White House? Uh, probably not, in kind of the big picture sense. You know, and then on the other side, there's politics you know going on in China as well. And when you look at what's happening with decoupling, you know, it, the Chinese have actually been much more aggressive in this. I, I think I think Beijing, looking out into the future, has already decided. That uh, China's going to have, uh, um, you know, China's not going to have the same relationship with the U.S. going forward over 40 years that they've had in the past 40 years, and a lot of Chinese policy, let's say on on technology, you know, has really been designed to decrease Chinese reliance on on the U.S. Uh, so, you know, whatever is happening with U.S. politics, you also have to look at what's happening in China. Chinese one where Chinese policy is going, and and Chinese policy is also kind of heading in the direction where they're looking at decreasing their relationship with the United States. So incremental moves like, for example, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about restricting visas for some Huawei workers yesterday and the substantially greater move by the UK to actually restrict the use of Huawei elements in in, in telecom structure and infrastructure over there by 2027. How does that impact China? Does it cause China to make a sort of a proactive decision about these countries or can China afford to ignore those kinds of soft power moves? Well, you know, I think what's really interesting about what's going on now is I think you're seeing uh, more and more governments around the world, you know, you mentioned the UK decision on, on Huawei. I mean, you're, I think you're seeing more and more governments uh, around the world reacting very negatively to Chinese policy right now, uh, both economic policy, but also in terms of Hong Kong and and, and other matters. Uh, and you know, I, the, the Chinese obviously feel strong enough at this moment that they feel that they can do this. And and uh, uh, but you know, looking at it from a pure economic standpoint. Uh, you know, this is still an emerging uh, economy. It's, it's it's still relatively poor. It still needs technology from the rest of the world, and it, and China also has huge ambitions to be a technology leader. Uh, and if it's going to see doors closing, 
uh, to it and its companies and its technology uh, around the world. You know, that's that's really really negative for China China's economic future. So. I, I mean, I would hope in Beijing that there's a, re- a rethink of some of the things that they're doing. They're do- doing. There does not seem to be uh, one at this point. But you know, this is not an, uh, an economic miracle that that can continue in in isolation. All right, Michael, thank you. Fascinating conversation there. And Michael, of course, joining us from Hong Kong. We'll have to ask him about the situation on the ground next time he's on. Michael Schumann is author, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and his latest book, author of Superpower Interrupted, the Chinese History of the World. And it is fascinating, Paul, because to a certain extent, China is, you know, already well beyond the US in terms of infrastructure, in terms of its major cities. And it was maybe supposed to be the promised land for America in business, as Michael Schumann said, but calls are growing louder and louder for the two economies to decouple. Can they? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see, if, you know, from a um, supply chain perspective, so much of uh, the product we have here in the U.S. comes from China. And then, of course, on the other end, Vani, you know, uh, it's such a big market for so many U.S. companies and Western companies in general. So we'll have to see how this plays out, but fascinating. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.